Luke 24, 36 through 43. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you said anything? Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. This is the word of the Lord. You know, if you study cultures of the world very often, or if you're a student of history at all, uh, one of the things that you will find very quickly is that pretty much every culture throughout all of time and throughout all of space loves stories. Every culture has their own stories. And in fact, stories in large part are what form cultures. They're what teach us our values and the way we look at the world. And you know what kind of stories we all love? Stories with happy endings. We love stories with happy endings. Now, some of you, I'm sure, are like, I like stories with sad endings. I'm sure you're a blast at parties. We like stories with happy endings. Um, Stories with happy endings always do better at the box office than stories with sad endings. You know, those epic tales of danger and of evil being thwarted by a hero or by a heroine who face long odds. We love stories like that. Why? Have you ever wondered that? Why do we love those kinds of stories? Fantasies and epics and true stories that reflect those beautiful truths for us. Why do we love stories with happy endings? Well, my good friend J.R.R. Tolkien um, gives us, yes, I said that, he gives us a reason. Uh, He gives us a great reason in his essay called On Fairy Stories, why we all love stories. And Tolkien says, we love stories with happy endings because they are a dim reflection of the true story. They're a dim reflection of what he calls the fairy tale of the world, the true story of man's history. Listen to Tolkien. He says, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a story of a larger kind, which embraces all the essence of fairy stories or fairy tales. That's why Tolkien and his friend C.S. Lewis call the gospel the true myth, the true myth. What they're saying is that the gospel is a fairy tale that has actually happened. It's actually happened in history. How is it a fairy tale? Well, it's a fairy tale because the hero, Jesus, wins. He conquers death against all odds. At the very center of the Christian story is the reality that a Jewish carpenter's son was murdered by his enemies and was sealed in a Roman tomb, but his body came back to life. And his body is actually still alive right now. Jesus of Nazareth was resurrected from the dead. To use the Princess Bride's medical terminology, he was all dead, not just mostly dead. And he came back to life. Jesus, the story of the Bible tells us, beat back death and darkness in his resurrection. That story is, as Tolkien says, the true myth. It's the great true fairy tale. And listen, it's something that really can completely change your life. It can completely change your life. Don't believe me? 
Let the Spirit go to work on you through this story. We're concluding this Meals with Jesus series, and the major theme of this series has been that um, the really liberal use of food and drink in the life of Jesus. He's always at parties. He's always feasting. He's always having good food and good drink. And the reason Luke shows us that again and again and again in Jesus's life is to point us to the liberal use of God's grace, to the lavish use of God's mercy to broken and hurting and rebellious people like you and like me. And we see that again here. Here we see Jesus eating another meal with his closest friends, with his disciples after his resurrection. He has an encounter with them around some broiled fish. And in this encounter, he shows us the meaning of his resurrection and the reason that people who claim Christ as their Savior have hope. Food, in this story, represents hope. It represents life, new life, resurrected life. So I want to study it with you for a few minutes. Let me summarize the main idea like this. Jesus physically rose from the dead to welcome us into life and to redeem all of our hurts. It's good news. I want to break that sentence up into three parts and use it as an outline today. First, we'll see Jesus physically rose from the dead. Secondly, to welcome us into life, to welcome us into life, and then thirdly, to redeem all of our hurts. So Jesus physically rose from the dead. That's what this story tells us. The basis of faith for the Christians around the world and for those of us here today who are Christians is, is seen in this story. It's held to by our faith that Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead. That's what this story very explicitly shows us. Luke opens up by telling us that the 11 remaining disciples, this is after Judas's betrayal of Jesus and the others, they're in an upper room together and rumors are already swirling around that Jesus is back. But the disciples, as you might imagine, given what's happened to them in the prior 72 hours, are confused and afraid and, well, they're uncertain. They're uncertain about what to do next or about what's going to happen to them next. And then, boom, Jesus, verse 36, himself stood among them and said, peace be to you. That's an ancient Jewish way of saying, hey guys, what's up? Hey guys, how's it going? And as you might imagine, the disciples at first, they they don't get what's happening. It's not every day that someone that you saw die walks into a room with you and says, hey guys. So they're startled and they're frightened and they thought it was a ghost or maybe that they're hallucinating. The sheer brute reality of Jesus's dead body coming back to life and walking into a room startles them. And it startled people for 2000 years since. It startled people who even claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. And so people come up with all sorts of explanations for what's going on here, other than the obvious explanation that a dead guy came back to life, that his brain started moving again, his blood started flowing again, and he started breathing again. One famous explanation that many have given is that really this is a metaphor. This is just about the spirit of Jesus's teachings being resurrected and living on. And really, the resurrection of Jesus is about you and me, if we claim to follow Jesus, loving our neighbor as ourselves. The problem with that is that it's really hard to love your neighbor as yourself if the person who told us to do that is dead. And we'll find out why in a minute. But that, that idea that this is just metaphorical reminds me of you know, something that we're probably familiar with. If, if loved ones that are close to us die, people will often you know, find a memento Maybe it's a picture, something of their personal belongings, 
to, uh, to hold on to, to remember that person by, right? My mom, who's a counselor, once uh, counseled a lady for some time who had lost her husband early in life, but years later still slept with his old clothes right next to her in bed so that she could have a sense that he was still with her. But you know what the problem with that is? The problem is that it keeps you stuck in the past. And at best, it's a vague sense, a vague sense of being with someone. But that's the best we can do when we face the opponent named death. Death is too strong. And let me tell you, that is not what's happening here. The disciples aren't just saying, wasn't it fun when we got to see Jesus transfigured on that mountain? Man, we had some good times with Jesus. I remember, oh wait, no, I remember being persecuted and being alone and being stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But we did have some good times with Jesus. Let's just hold on to his teachings and remember him. That's not what's happening. Jesus is not just, Jesus is not just vaguely there. They're not just remembering stories about Jesus. Jesus is physically present. He's all the way there. He's fully returned. Look at what he says, verse 39. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. Jesus is saying in this appearance that he is with them after death and he will not ever leave them again. Jesus physically came back to life. You might think, that's really weird. And you know what? Yeah, it is. We agree. (laughs) That's why we're so excited as Christians. Nothing like this has ever happened before and nothing like this will ever happen again. And here's why the physical resurrection of Jesus is so central. Here's why it's the great fairy tale ending come true. It's not just anyone who died and rose. It's not just anyone who died and rose. It's Jesus who was made sin for us, the Bible says. It's Jesus who calls himself the slain lamb of God, who came to take away our sins. It was the one who died our death who came back. It was the one who was rejected by the world who came back. That is the one who has risen. What that means is that the resurrection is, it's like the stamp of approval from God. That Jesus' death does all that he said it would do. It cancels the death wage of sin that we have all spent our lives accruing. The resurrection of Jesus, you see, verifies and validates the death of Jesus. It means salvation from death and hell and hopelessness. That salvation is truly available right at this moment for every single one of you. For every single one of us who accept this story. And it also means, it also means that This life is not all there is. Jesus' bodily resurrection means that he is going to renew this physical world. Jesus' physical resurrection means that he's going to renew our physical bodies, which have been tarnished and ruined by rebellion. Jesus is going to make them perfect one day if we connect to him in faith. That's what the Apostle Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead. Jesus Christ physically rose. Can I, can I just do this? Can I make an appeal um, to your desires for a second? You might not accept this story. You might think it's kind of just hogwash or gibberish. You might be skeptical. We're glad you're here. 
happy to talk more about it with you. And I just want to appeal to your desires. Even if right now you don't believe that dead people come back to life, and 2,000 years later, he's still in heaven, this ethereal, weird place that we don't understand, in a body that isn't getting older right now. Even if you don't believe that, can I just ask you, wouldn't that be a better way for things to end? Uh, Think about it this way. There's really only two options um, for how things end. Either the sun is going to die out, and we're all going to freeze and ice out into death and fade into oblivion, and no one is ever going to remember that we ever existed nor care about anything that's happening to you right now. Sound bad? Well, it's option one. (laughs) Option option two is um, that everything is going to be healed, that all wounds are going to be repaired, all hurts are going to be forgiven, and we will exist on into eternity in the ultimate happy ending. Which do you want to be true? And why do you want the second option? Why do you want to walk through door number two? Well, the reason is because the true story is written on your hearts. Jean-Paul Sartre, the famous atheist philosopher, once said, I don't believe in God, but I want what only God can give me. I don't believe in God, but I want what only God can give me. The point is, because your very desires for the fairy tale to be true are another piece of proof that the gospel is itself the true fairy tale, Jesus really did rise. He physically came back from the dead, and he did it to welcome us into life. Let's look at that second. Where do we see that? Well, Jesus shows up. The disciples don't believe it. He says, listen, I've got skin and bones. I'm right here. The guy you once knew is the guy right here standing in front of you. And then he says, hey, does anybody have anything to eat? He offers them a meal together. And Jesus eats two fish. And it's obvious, right, that that's like another piece of evidence that Jesus is marshalling in his argument that he's come back to life. Hey, check this out. I can eat food. I have a physical body. I really am alive. But that's not all that's happening, as cool as that is. That's really not even the main point of the fish and the meal. What have we seen again and again in this series? What have we seen throughout Luke's telling of this story? Luke uses food. Luke uses feasting constantly in the gospel to show us that Jesus came to have fellowship with, to befriend, to love, and to welcome the wandering and the hurting and the ruined people of the world. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And that's what this final meal Jesus has before he ascends into heaven means as well. In that culture and in our culture, to welcome someone into your home, to welcome someone to your table. That's, that's a way that we welcome them into friendship, right? A way we welcome them into fellowship. Jesus here is using food to welcome his friends into life with him. I love how Luke arranges the story. Jesus offers them fellowship around the table, around food. Right after verse 41, they disbelieved for joy. I love that phrase. What a remarkable statement that is. They disbelieve for joy. They they can't believe what's happening. They're speechless. Even Peter, who's never speechless, is speechless. They're in shock. They don't know what to say. They can't get past the physical fact of Jesus being back with them. They're stunned into silence by the resurrection miracle. And Jesus says, I know it's great, but there's more. There's more than just the fact of my bodily resurrected presence 
Come, be my friend. Come, have a meal with me. Come into fellowship. Think about this with me. Think about it with me in the context of the bigger story. Even if you haven't been around the Bible for a while, I bet you've heard this before. The resurrected Jesus here invites his friends into a meal. Now remember, these are the same guys, the same 11 disciples that just a few hours earlier bailed on Jesus, right? They abandoned Jesus. He was sweating drops of blood in the garden, praying. And what were they doing? Sleeping. Jesus was arrested and handed over to the Roman authorities unjustly, and they're running away. Jesus was grilled by Pilate and by Herod, and he's mocked by the crowds. And Peter, his closest friend, says, I never knew that guy. No idea who that is. The disciples, the disciples have not loved Jesus well. If the definition of discipleship is to follow the way of your teacher, then listen, the disciples are miserable failures, aren't they? The disciples are miserable failures. But what does Jesus do? Listen, Jesus welcomes miserable failures. Jesus came for miserable failures. Are you a miserable failure? Let me answer that for you. I love you, but yes. (laughs) Yes. Let me be nicer. Am I a miserable failure? You answer it. Thank you. I am a miserable failure. And it's as if Jesus is saying in this meal, listen, miserable failures, my work for you is completed. There's now nothing in the universe that can take you away from me, not even your own sin, not even your own miserable failing. Jesus conquers death in his resurrection. He conquers the penalty for human rebellion against God by paying it himself. And here in this story, he tells his disciples that they will conquer death as well. His his resurrection welcomes them into life. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus has the power to welcome you into life as well. It has the power to do that right now. You have to believe it. You have to let the hard facts of Jesus coming back wrestle you into faith. If you don't believe it, the resurrection cannot do anything else for you. But, 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 if you do believe it, if you do believe it, then the resurrection reforges your entire life. And it reforges your entire future. The novelist John Updike once wrote, I have the persistent sensation that in my life and art, I am just beginning. Updike's correct. The resurrection means that all who believe in Jesus are just beginning in this world. The resurrection means, listen, death is not the end of your life. Death is the beginning of your life. Isn't that incredible? Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that death is the supreme festival on the road to freedom. It's the supreme festival on the road to freedom. By the way, incidentally, he wrote that wasting away in a Nazi prison cell waiting to be executed as a spy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, we don't have to be afraid of anything, especially not death? Because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, death, for those who trust in him, is the gateway into our real lives. 
It's the gateway into our forever lives. It's the gateway into, into who we will really be for all time. The Chicago evangelist of the early 20th century, Dwight Moody, once in a sermon said this, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I will be more alive than I am now. Can I be plain with you? I'm going to be plain, okay? Um, You deserve to die. You deserve to die and suffer God's judgment because you have been a traitor against God, who is your king and your Lord. You deserve to die and suffer God's judgment because you have lived a life, and I have lived a life, that in countless ways hurts the heart of God and hurts the heart of others. You deserve to die and be separated from God, and I deserve to die and be separated from God because God is supremely holy and righteous and pure, and we have not been holy, and we are not holy now. But Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ was raised for your justification. And so, for you, if you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate you from love of God in Jesus. The resurrection means welcome into life. Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead to welcome us into life. And then lastly, he did it to redeem all of our hurts. Look at that with me. Jesus was physically raised from the dead, we've seen, to redeem our hurts. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, look back in the story. Have you ever wondered why Jesus told his disciples uh, to look at his hands and his feet? I mean, why, why not Jesus saying, look into my eyes? Check me out. I mean, allegedly, we can only assume that Jesus tells his disciples to look at and touch his hands and his feet because that's where the marks of his death by crucifixion are, right? Surely you know this. A, a crucifixion was a grisly, an excruciating way to die. They would, they would drive nails through your hands right here at the palms or through your wrists and then drive nails through your ankles or through the middle of your foot and nail you onto a wooden tree and you would over time die by asphyxiation. And so Jesus is saying here, you know it's me. You know it's me because there's evidence here on my body that I'm the one who was crucified. That's why he tells them, look at my hands. That's why he tells them, look at my feet. Now think about that with me. This is after the resurrection. This is Jesus' glorified, perfected, death-defeating body. And it bears the scars of his death. It bears the scars of his suffering. Why? When we see and touch Jesus one day, which you will if you're a Christian, you will see and you will touch touch Jesus one day, you will see and touch his scars. Why? Think about it like this. Why do we love fairy tales? Back to the first question. Why do we love great stories? Why do we love good stories with happy endings? Well, we love them, and especially the best ones, because it's the suffering and um, it's the hurts. And it's the hard things that actually turn out to be salvation for the person enduring them. Those are the best stories. 
It's the pain that actually in the end brings life so that at the end of all the suffering endured by the character, it makes sense to us as the people reading or the people watching the story. I'm so tempted to go Lord of the Rings here. I'm going to resist. I'm resisting by the grace of God. Uh, Think about the movie Signs. Remember the movie Signs? Some of you might have seen that. 2002, starring Mel Gibson, M. Night Shyamalan movie before his career derailed. Um, Signs, pretty dark movie. It's a pretty dark movie. Uh, Mel Gibson is a former priest uh, living kind of in middle America in this rural farming community. And when the story picks up, his wife has died in a car wreck six months earlier, and he's lost his faith. He's left the church. He's done. And his character has two children. He has a son who's asthmatic and physically weak. And he has a daughter who, let's just say, she's really quirky. And she has this weird habit of leaving glasses of water everywhere, all over the house. And um, he also has a brother, played by uh, Joaquin Phoenix, the Joker, um, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who lives with them. And his brother is this failed minor league baseball player dealing with his own loss. And uh, it's a dark thing. Nobody's happy. And then aliens invade the planet. So things get better. Aliens invade the planet. And uh, this, this family has to fight off the aliens. And without going into all the details, the brilliant part of the story is at the end. In fighting off the aliens, every single thing that has been painful for this family, every single thing that has manifested their weakness is essential in the fight and victory. It's really a cool film. It's an example of what the best stories do. The best stories use suffering to bring renewal. And listen, that is the gospel. Jesus' scars are still there because by his wounds we are healed. His suffering and his torment and his death and his burial, those things, that's what brings life to us and to this world. Jesus' hurts are what redeem us. Jesus shows them the nail scars because that was what it took to get us to resurrection. Bad things had happened to Jesus, but the scars didn't ruin Jesus's life and the scars didn't ruin his disciples' lives. In fact, the scars saved their lives. Listen, your scars, your scars will not ruin your life if you connect to Jesus. The resurrection makes your scars understandable and the resurrection makes your scars redemptive. Jesus actually uses your scars to save your life because he used his scars to save your life. (laughs) The amazing truth of Christianity, the amazing truth of the resurrection is that the resurrection redeems and explains all the tragedy. All the tragedy of your lives. It doesn't just overcome them, it explains them. The resurrection doesn't just say life will be better one day. It enhances your joy. Now listen, we can only see a glimpse of how that's going to work in this life. Some of you who are older in the faith and on the other side of this race might be able to catch a picture of how God's doing that in your story. But the reality is that Jesus has joy that won't just make us forget the bad things in our lives, but it will actually redeem the bad things in our lives. What are your hurts? What are your hurts? Sickness? Are you sick of being sick? Wrecked marriages? 
damaged relationships with your kids or your parents? Have you been abandoned? Have you been abused? Addiction? Feelings of loneliness and isolation? No one understands me. Betrayal? The pain of losing those closest to you through death? Mental illness? Physical handicaps? Listen, listen. The resurrection is not just saying you'll have a better life then. It's not. It's saying you'll have the life you always wanted but can't get to now. You'll not miss out on anything. Sorry. Because the resurrection is not just consolation. It's restoration of everything. Of everything. Even your scars. Andrew Peterson, singer-songwriter, has an amazing song. I knew I wouldn't be able to get through that without crying. I'm sorry. He has an amazing song um, called Don't You Want to Thank Someone? And um, he tries to, in that song, explain why the world is the way it is, uh, including in part why we go through suffering if we love Jesus. And I want to close by reading you this line. Here's what he says. When the world is new again and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing, a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and redeemed by love. Maybe this old world is bent, but it's waking up, and I'm waking up.